Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. All right. Um, so this has been so much fun to to prepare this message, pray it through, because I've been in this room like a ton of hours every day during this fast, and we've been praying these concepts and these verses like constantly on the mic. So I've been like most of the verses that I've been praying on the mic the past two weeks have been like they're like in my notes. I was like studying and writing stuff and then like it's prayer for Israel. I could pray the thing I just wrote. So it's been so much fun. I highly recommend it. If you ever have to do a teaching, get five million people to pray for your teaching topic and it it's it works really well. <laughs> Um, so let's talk, let's talk about God's zealous love for Israel. So we, we're friends of God. We want to be friends with God. We want to care about what he cares about. And he, he cares about Israel. There is a covenant he had with Israel that he's never let go of. And it's so deep and so dear to his heart. Um, and I want to emphasize that doesn't mean he loves Israel or Jewish people any more than he loves you and me Gentiles. That that's not, that's not what that means, but it does mean he has a very specific and unique place in his plans for them. And because of his faithfulness to them, because of his covenant towards them, there is like a really unique um, flavor of emotion that he has toward them. That doesn't mean he loves you as a Gentile born in Texas any less. Um, but there is something unique about his heart and his affection um, for Israel. And so I'm going to talk to us mostly tonight. I'm going to say like us Gentiles. And I, I don't, there may, I don't know if there's, there might be, you know, people in the room who are not pure Gentiles and that's okay. That's awesome. But I'm, I'm going to, I'm a Gentile. So I'm going to be talking to us as though we're all Gentiles. Um, but as, as, as standing on this side as we're, as we're Gentile believers in the Jewish Messiah, we get to be invited into his heart. We get to join with him in friendship and partnership. So that's the angle that as I'm looking at all of this, this is not like an academic, interesting Bible study. This is our opportunity to be friends with God and join in his heart and care about something that our best friend cares about. Um, so that's, that's my approach as we're looking through all of this. Um, there's, this is part of how we mature in our relationship with him, caring about what he cares about, carrying the burdens of his heart. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, um, we picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side. So, you know, when you're in a romantic relationship with someone, there's a lot of staring at each other, and there's a lot of face-to-face -face that happens in that relationship. But if you're, like, best friends with someone, there's less gazing into each other's eyes and more, like, side-by-side. -side. Let's enjoy our shared interests together. Let's tackle this project together. Let's do a thing together that we both care about. It's more like it's, it's a side-by-side -side partnership as opposed to a face-to-face -face partnership. And, of course the best marriages need both. Like you're supposed to be best friends with your spouse. Um, so in our marriage relationship um, with Jesus, we want to have both. We want to have the gazing at him, feeling his love, giving him our love. Jesus, I love you. You love me. Like we'd want to like meditate on that, dwell in that. That's awesome. But also we're his friends. We want to be side by side in partnership with him, caring about what he cares about, doing the things that he, he cares about. We want to partner with him in that. I think about being a friend of the bridegroom, and that was John the Baptist phrase. Um, John 3, 29, he said, the, uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. 
Jesus, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. So the friend of the bridegroom, kind of like a best man at a wedding, um, that, that best friend of the bridegroom who's, whose job it is to kind of like help facilitate what the bridegroom cares about and draw people to the bridegroom, help, help encourage the bride to love the bridegroom. So we, we are the bride, but also we get to f- play that role, fulfill that position as friends of the bridegroom. So as friends of God, let's join him in his zeal for Israel. So God chose Israel in a unique way to be the focal point of his interaction with humanity. So the Bible is an Israel-centric story. There's Gentiles here and there and mentioned and absolutely reap the benefits of the overflow of everything that Israel is, and we're going to talk about that. But from beginning to end, it is an Israel-centric story, um, and it's, it's very, it's an emotional, passionate, jealous relationship that God has towards Israel. And I do, I have to mention uh, Luke Fredenberg. I'm glad you just walked in the room, Luke. Uh, a few months ago, Luke did a message and encounter service on God's zeal to Israel. And I looked up that message and referenced it while I was preparing these notes. I was like, this is so good. So go listen to that. Go read the notes. Um, I almost wanted to be like, why am I even doing this? Like Luke already did this. So hopefully I'll bring some other angles, but he already taught an incredible message on Luke's, uh, or on, on God's zeal for Israel, which I think Luke shares as well. <laughs> Zechariah 1.14, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Um, there's a few more, I love Deuteronomy 10, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations. So God has such this passionate jealousy that he so desires their, their love, their worship, their like full devotion, which you open yourself up to love, you open yourself up to being hurt. And that's, God's not exempt from that. He kind of wrote the book on that. Um, God's grief at Israel's rejection. The tragedy of Israel is that over and over and over, there's cycles and patterns of Israel following the Lord and then rejecting him and then following him and rejecting him, wandering off after other gods and all these different things. Um, And that breaks God's heart every time. He has such grief and anguish every time um, Israel forsakes him and he describes this as adultery against him he he views it as a marriage relationship long before we the bible talked about you know the gentile church being the bride of, bride of christ israel was the bride of yahweh and that was that was how this whole thing started he describes her unfaithfulness to him as adultery that's what the whole story of hosea is i highly recommend go read hosea just read it front to back read the story of it um, and it's God's, God called a prophet Hosea and then told him, marry a woman who's going to cheat on you because I want you to feel what I feel when Israel cheats on me with other gods, other lovers, he calls them. Um, he has such just a burning, jealous passion over Israel and over their devotion to him. And this, this leads us to Jesus longing for Israel to recognize him. This, this just like, touches me so deeply when I think about Jesus longing for Israel to recognize him. Because when he came the first time, 2,000 years ago, Jews were the foundation of the early church. But it was still a small remnant. It was a fraction of the totality of Israel at the time. Most of Israel did not recognize and accept him. And throughout the generations, most of Israel has mostly not um, recognized and accepted him. 
but they will. There is coming a day when Israel will recognize and accept Jesus as their Messiah. There is a phrase in Zechariah that just so, so, so touched me. Um, so backstory, I was in IHOP in, uh, at International House of Prayer in Kansas City in 2012. Mike Bickle did a weekend intensive on the book of Zechariah. Um, and it was like so many sessions over a weekend or something. Um, and then I took all his study notes. And I remember like being in listening to Mike teach. And I felt like I was reading Book of Revelation Part 2 or something. Like I didn't know there was another book in the Bible that was so end times as Revelation. I was reading Zechariah and I'm like, it's all the same stuff. It's just in different words. Oh, my gosh. So cool. Um, so then I took all the study notes into the prayer room. And I started just studying through them at my own pace. And I hit this, this verse, and as I was reading Zechariah in the prayer room, um, Zechariah 2.9, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And this phrase is repeated a few times in Zechariah, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And I can just feel Jesus's emotion so strongly there, then, then you will know, then there will be a day you finally, finally recognize me. I think it's the same emotion he had when he stood and looked over the city of Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. This is the emotion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that longing for them to receive him, to recognize who he is, that this, this is the ache and the cry of his heart. So you enter into God's emotions for Israel, you, you, hit, this, you hit this ache. The Jesus' desire for that moment when they recognize him. Zechariah 2.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, grace and supplication. They will look on me as, as one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So this moment where God gives the gift of repentance, gives grace for that cry for mercy and that spirit of wisdom and revelation where they recognize him, they say, oh, that's... That's him. That's Jesus of Nazareth. That's the one the Gentiles have been talking about all this time and we missed it. But that's him. He's ours. He's our family. As one grieves for a firstborn son, they're like, that's, that's the son of David. That's the most important Jewish man ever. He's one of us. He's one of us. There is a day when they're going to recognize. They're going to have that moment. And Jesus' heart, like, that's, that's his daydream. That's the day that Jesus is longing for all right, so with some of that emotional backdrop, we need to get in some nitty-gritty of what are the promises to Israel. What are the foundational promises that the whole rest of everything is based on? Uh, so the promise of land, descendants, and blessing to the nation. So the story of Israel starts with God's covenant with one man, Abraham. Um, and that, that covenant is the cornerstone of the gospel. Everything else is built on that. Um, a lot of times we don't think about it or realize it, and you can absolutely get saved without ever thinking twice about the Abrahamic covenant, but like the mechanics of salvation is based on the Abrahamic covenant. 
the Abrahamic covenant has three specific promises um, that God gave, and they cannot be fully fulfilled until Jesus comes. That's key. They're all intertwined, and they're all like hanging on a future date when Jesus comes. It's impossible for all of these to be fulfilled until it all happens together when Jesus comes. They see him. They recognize the moment we just talked about. They all get saved. They're all right with God, and then God can give them these blessings and fulfill these promises. God, can't, God wants to fulfill these promises, but he can't unless they're, they're fully righteous. He can't bless um, in, in such a dramatic way. He can't give these full blessings to a nation that's not walking with him. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, but there's these three promises, land, descendants, and blessing to the nation. So let's look. Well, let's read, read it first. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord had said to Abram, go for, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So there's one. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Land, great nation, descendants, um, and blessing to the nations. So I used to look at these, you know, growing up reading my Sunday school Bible, I kind of thought this, you know, like, that's a great promise. And he did it all. There is a nation of Israel. Um, and even before, you know, 1948, when the nation of Israel kind of recently reappeared, there was a nation of Israel. Like King David ruled a nation of Israel. There was a nation of Israel. God kept his promise. And there are tons of Jews. Abraham had a lot of kids, a lot of descendants. Okay, God kept his promise. And then blessing to the nations, Jesus came through the line of Abraham. God kept his promise. And those are all true. Those are all like parts of the fulfillment of these things. But it's so much more than that. And especially as you see some of these details unfold and throughout the scriptures you can see God kind of giving commentary on what he really meant and the full picture of what those things are supposed to mean you realize this was we've only seen a fraction of the fulfillment there's so much more to this and they're all tied up into Israel's righteousness which can't come until Jesus comes so look at land Abraham and his descendants are going to inherit the full extent of the promised land. In Genesis um, 15, God gave boundaries. He described geographic boundaries of what the land of Israel was supposed to be. Um, and he said it would be an everlasting possession, that they would like fully have, have the land in their possession forever. Um, but it was supposed to be a pretty large territory. Um, it's supposed to be a total of about 300,000 square miles. Right now, the borders of Israel are only about um, 8,600 square miles, which is 2.87% of what was promised. So thus far, God has been faithful to 2.87% of giving them that land. Um, he, he's, he's more than a 2.87% God. He's going to do it 100%. Um, just for comparison, DFW is 9,300 square miles. So DFW, our metroplex, is larger than the entire nation of Israel. That, that puts some things in perspective for me. There's a lot more that um, God is going to do. And that they would have it as an everlasting possession. Currently, less than half of all Jews worldwide live in Israel. Because throughout the generations, they've been scattered through all sorts of different reasons. Um, and only 47% currently of all Jews worldwide live in Israel. That's a good chunk, and there's been, you know, a whole bunch moving there since 
1948, and they could, um, but still most of the Jews in the world are scattered throughout the world. That's not possessing the land as an everlasting possession. That's being everywhere. Um, furthermore, the prophet said that they would dwell in the land securely, that it would be peaceful, that they wouldn't have to worry about attack from enemies. That is not remotely, even slightly true right now. They constantly have to worry about attack from enemies. Um, so for them to dwell in the land of securely without fear of attack, there were ac there's actually verses that describe them like living in cities without walls. How nice. That sounds so peaceful that, that they don't even need to worry about, you know, we don't even need walls to defend us. Like the whole land is peaceful. And that's, that's not true right now. They need their walls. They need their iron do dome. Like they need their defenses. But in order for God to fully fulfill this promise of all of what was meant when he promised Abraham the land, they have to be dwelling in the land securely without fear of attack. They need peace. And they have to be walking in righteous relationship with God in order to receive that fulfillment. Um, when God gave the law in Leviticus, he warned them of exile right off the bat. He said, like, you have to, you have to follow me. Otherwise, I can't give you the fullness of these promises. You're going to be kicked out of the land. Ultimately, that happened. Um, and so he can't fully give them everything he wants to unless they are completely righteous. That has not happened in history. <clears throat> Gave you a ton of verses for reference there. I'm not going to read them all, but this, these notes are 12 pages, by the way. I think that's a little bit, it's, it's not on the short side for an encounter message. Um, you can thank me, it was almost 13 or 14. I tried so hard to cut it down. <laughs> Second promise, descendants. God not only promised Abraham lots of descendants, but he said that, that he would make um, their name great. Can we get some notes in the front here? Um, Abraham's name would be great. Um, and you can't have a great name in God's eyes unless you're righteous. And this is, again, the same problem as with the land. They can't fully have this promise unless they're fully righteous. There's a verse in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. So there they may be a lot of Jews, but they're not, they're not great unless they're righteous. Blessing to the nations. This is one that I'm going to talk extensively about um, in a few minutes here. Um, but God promised that Abraham would be a blessing to nations. His descendants would, would, would overflow into God's blessing for the whole earth. So right there at the onset, um, in the Abrahamic covenant, that's us. We are the nations. Us Gentiles, we are the nations. This is where we find our, our blessing uh, right there written in the Abrahamic covenant. And yes, Jesus' birth through the line of David, through the line of Abraham, was a big part of that fulfillment, but it's not the, full, it's not the fullness of it. When Jesus is back on earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in a fully restored Israel, um, the nations are going to get so blessed, we're not going to know what hit us. It's going to be incredible. <clears throat> I'm going to read Isaiah 61 to 3. Arise, shine, speaking to, to Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This light in Israel is going to affect and be a blessing to the whole earth. All right, I really want to make a big point here before I move on. This Abrahamic covenant is secure. 
land descendants blessing, this covenant God made with Abraham is, is unshakable. It is, it is the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. It is unshakable. Um, and I really have to make that point strong because there are a lot of people in the church who would much rather apply the promises of Israel symbolically to the Gentile church somehow um, and say that God has divorced Israel. He's no longer planning to keep his covenant to Abraham. He's going to reinterpret the whole thing and give it to Gentiles. And that is just anti the character of God. Yes, Israel has not been perfect. They've They've blown it in a lot of ways throughout history. But that doesn't nullify the faithfulness and the promises of God. We know this for our life, right? God does not abandon you and his faithfulness to you just because you blow it. His, his covenant with Abraham is absolutely secure. 2 Timothy 2.13, I didn't put this in the notes. Um, but though we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I love this verse. I speak it over myself. I speak it over other people when I pray for them, but it applies absolutely to the entire nation of Israel. Um, there is a, the, so the theology I was talking about um, that God has rejected Israel is called replacement theology or supersessionism. I've often heard it. You, you won't normally hear those terms said by someone who believes that. No one's going to say, I believe in replacement theology. That's kind of what we say when we're saying, please don't believe in replacement theology. From one of those people, you're probably going to hear better covenant theology. That sounds so much nicer. I believe in the new covenant. It superseded the old one. We don't need the old covenant, meaning like the covenant with Abraham. Um, and the ter terms do get a little tricky there, so you kind of have to listen very carefully for what someone's really saying. Um, but any theology that tries to replace God's plan for Israel with his plan for the Gentile church and say Israel is now irrelevant, they played their role and they're done and God's moved on, that is absolutely deception. And it's born out of Satan's hatred of the Jewish people, his hatred of God's promises, um, and trying to just theologically erase them. Um, we don't, we don't want to... We don't want to give any place to that theology. We love people who believe that. I mean, I have good friends who believe that. Um, and they love Jesus, and I love them. But I, I'm not going to... We don't stand for that theology around here. Jeremiah 31 is... When I, when I remember when I first found this passage, I was like, well, there you go. That answers everything. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37 this is what the Lord says, he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. And God's saying, I know Israel's blown it. I know all that they have done. It's a lot. But I'm not going to reject them any more than I'm going to stop the sun rising every day. Like, if there ever comes a day when, like, the, the laws of physics fall apart, that's the day I'm going to reject Israel, which obviously is never going to happen. Um, his covenant to Israel is as secure as even just these natural things that we see, the sun rising and setting every single day. So the Abrahamic covenant is absolutely secure, unshakable, no matter what Israel ever does or doesn't do. 
um, God is going to keep his word. He's going to be faithful to his promises. Um, and he has to get creative in how making, he made that happen because um, Israel hasn't been making it easy. But um, he is faithful and he, he will figure out how to make them righteous. And we will get to how he makes them righteous. Uh, but first I want to talk about Israel's millennial calling, um, where this is going, the future glory of Israel. We have to set our sights on the end of the story, where this is going. Um, the Messianic age is what is kind of in, in Jewish expectation. They use the term Messianic age to refer to the period when Messiah is reigning on the earth. So I like to say Messianic age instead of millennium sometimes, but it's the same thing. Um, the Revelation talks about the thousand years that Jesus is reigning on the earth. That's in the Old Testament, if you asked someone from one of the prophets, they'd call it the Messianic Age. So the Messianic Age, God will fully fulfill his covenant. He'll regather Israel. He will make them fully righteous, make them a great nation, give them the land. They'll be a blessing to the nations. Um, and I want to talk about being a blessing to the nations and what that means and the way they get to serve the rest of the world by hosting the presence of God. That's probably a more weighty statement. That, that's absolutely a more weighty statement than we realize. And again, it doesn't mean, as we're talking about this glorious future for Israel, doesn't mean God loves them anymore and loves you any less. But they have a very unique place in God's eternal plan, specifically their, um, their millennial calling. They're going to host the presence of God. We talk about, you know, hosting the presence of God now. Like, we want to host the presence of God through our worship in this prayer room. That's awesome. Yes, we absolutely do that. But can you imagine the fullness of that statement when Jesus is, like, on the earth, on the dirt in Jerusalem, hosting the presence of God? Yeah, Jesus, like, lives in your nation physically on the ground there's, uh, in Zechariah, it says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And I just love how it refers to his feet. I remember teaching a group of kids once and told them, like, his feet are going to stand on the ground. They're like, Jesus has feet? Like, yeah, he still has feet. And he's going to have feet. And his feet are going to stand on the dirt in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically. So the, the Jews who are in the millennium are going to get to host the presence of God in a profound, profound way. Um, Jerusalem will be the spiritual and governmental center of the universe. Um, Isaiah 62 says that Jerusalem will be a praise in the earth. Um, that's never happened before. That can only happen when Jesus is literally there. They get to host the full glory of God. The full glory of God, like God's presence in the temple and Jesus um, on the earth, in the flesh, that's an incredibly weighty privilege and responsibility. And this isn't, we're not talking about resurrected, like Messianic Jews who are, who are Messianic like in this age. Um, like any of your Jewish friends now who are saved, who die, like that's not primarily who I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about natural bodied Jews who are just like living normal human lives during the Messianic age. They, in their weak and broken state as humans, just like saved humans, a nation of saved humans gets to host the presence of God in like his full glory on their dirt, in their nation. How on earth is God going to manage that? 
to like that they would be able to bear that weighty responsibility, that glorious honor. But they're going to um, they're going to host the presence of God in fullness. I'm going to read a few of these verses just because I love the sound of them. I love the sound of these words coming out of my own mouth. Um, Ezekiel 33, uh, sorry, 43, 2 through 7. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. He said, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel the prophet, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Jeremiah 3.17, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. All nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. All right, I'm going to move on. Kingdom of priests. So Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just, yes, they had the Levites, they had the specific people who's like, life calling, their vocation, their job was to be priests, and that was incredible honor. That was awesome. Um, But the whole nation was called to be a kingdom of priests. The entire, all, all of the people, the blacksmiths, the everybody in the nation of Israel was supposed to be priestly. And what do we mean by priestly? The role of the priest is to stand before people on behalf of God. So let's imagine like God's back here, and here's the people, and I'm the priest. I'm standing before people on behalf of God, representing God to you, saying what God says, speaking the word of God, representing God to the people. But then at the same time, the priest turns around and gets to represent the people to God in intercession and sacrifices. Um, And so that's the role of a priest, to, to stand in the gap and represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And the whole nation was supposed to do this. They were supposed to, the whole nation was supposed to represent God to the rest of the world, to the rest of the Gentile nations. The original calling was to host the presence of God on the earth and demonstrate his heart and his ways to the watching nations. If you've ever looked into like how different the, the law that Israel followed was compared to like the customs and culture of the rest of the nations, it's pretty radical. It's even in terms of like, um, women's rights and eating ways that won't make you sick and things like it was very radical compared to the rest of the nations. Um, that's just one small example. They're supposed to represent the character and the ways of God to the rest of the earth. That was the plan, and it hasn't it hasn't fully happened, um, but they will in the millennium. They're going to represent God to the nations so well. The nations will come to Jerusalem. Isaiah 62, Jerusalem's going to be a praise in the earth. The nations are going to stream to Jerusalem. I love that it uses the word stream. Um, I think I have the verse here. Uh, there is a verse that says stream. I'm not sure if I wrote it here or not. It might be one of those in my long chain of references. Um, but the nations streaming to Jerusalem. I love that image of just like flocking and flooding and coming in droves to hear the word of the Lord, to celebrate feasts, to bring offerings, to learn the wisdom of God. The nations coming um, to Jerusalem to, to, to encounter God through the like priestly ministry of the Jewish people. Can you imagine, like the, the, it, like the Jews are like, the usher is like, welcome, welcome, Jesus is this way, welcome, welcome, <laughs> wearing yellow vests. <laughs> So 
This is this is their the privilege they have to represent God to the world and to like receive the incoming nations of the world to come and encounter God on their dirt in Israel. Teaching from Jerusalem. So in the Messianic age, they get to fulfill this calling of 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 speaking the word of God to the rest of the world. Jesus is going to teach just like he used to, just like he did the Sermon on the Mount, just like he did the Olivet Discourse. He would sit down and teach groups of people. He's going to do that again. In the middle of being king of everything, he's going to take some time to be a teacher. And he probably won't even need a microphone, but he's going to teach to the nations who come to learn from him um, in Jerusalem. Um, But just like Jesus had disciples, just like he commissioned us to help spread his word to the world, Israel is going to help him in that teaching ministry. And they're going to be partnered with him. He's going to distribute that leadership, that responsibility of discipling the nations. Israel is going to help Jesus disciple the nations in the ways of God. That's incredible. Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted among the hills, or excuse me, above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. I was right. There was, it was Isaiah 2. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this, I, I, I feel like I didn't even remotely do it justice. So just spend some time there. Ask God to expand your imagination of what it looks like when Israel gets to be a blessing to the nations during the millennium, when they get to fulfill their priestly calling as a kingdom of priests when Jesus is on the earth. But in order to get there, All Israel has to be saved. So let's look at how that happens. There is a fixed point in the future when all Israel will be saved. This is guaranteed. This is as secure as the Abrahamic covenant. It's all tied to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, And God, in his wisdom, he's going to bring this about at the end of the age. When Jesus returns, Zechariah describes this moment where they recognize him and mourn. I I already read this verse, which, by the way, the Zechariah 12 verse, when I first wrote these notes, I had this verse quoted in here three separate times. And then I was like, Caitlin, that's too much. you got to cut one of them out. So I swapped it out for parallel verse in Revelation 1. One other time it is in, in my notes. That was my compromise with myself. But I just I fell in love with this verse while I was preparing these notes. Just that moment. Because it's to me, it's the clearest verse where I see this moment in Scripture, like so emotionally, that moment they recognize him. They're going to be saved. Um, Romans 11.33, all Israel will be saved. I'm going to... I didn't put that verse right here, but I put it on page 11. So I'm just going to jump forward and read it from page 11. Romans 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Be saved. That's, I, I left out some words. It says, and then all Israel will be saved. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And I just love that Like Paul spends like three chapters outlining God's, how he's going to get all of Israel saved and just all of the layers of strategy that takes. Um, And then he gets to it and he's just like, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Like, this is brilliant. I never would have thought of how to do this. But God figured it out. He managed it. And he had just like the most brilliant plan ever. He's going to get all of Israel saved. 
So what Paul is describing in Romans 11, I'm back to page 7, top of of page 7, letter B, um, provoked by Gentile believers, Paul lays out this plan of such delicately balanced wisdom that only God could have thought of it. It's incredible the way that God, like, works everything together for our good, works everything together for the good of the whole planet. Um, So Israel, 2,000 years ago, the majority of Israel did not receive Jesus, rejected the gospel, but that pushed the gospel out to the Gentiles. God used that to push the gospel out, so then it spread quickly to the ends of the earth. Um, More or less, we're still working on a few ends of the earth, but we push the gospel out to the Gentiles, and then, but here's the brilliant part. God's going to actually bring it full circle, and he's going to use the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy to where 2,000 years later, Israel realizes um, what's, what's going on. They realize the truth of the gospel because of the witness of the Gentiles. This is, this is absolutely brilliant. This forces humility in all of us because the Gentiles have to acknowledge that we're writing the coattails of Israel. This isn't our story. We have to, in humility, acknowledge the, the place of Israel in God's plan. And then the Jews have to acknowledge that the Gentiles figured something out that they didn't. And so they actually need to listen to truth from the Gentiles of all people. And that it, it, this is just God's brilliant wisdom to force humility in all of his people across the whole planet and then all Israel will be saved. The wisdom of God. It's incredible. <clears throat> all right, the moment of acceptance. I've talked about this. I'm going to talk about it again. Israel, there's a moment when Jesus returns. So let's imagine that. It's the end of the tribulation. Everything's up in ashes. The planet is a wreck. The Jews are in concentration camps. Everything is terrible. Um, but then... Jesus comes breaking through. And that song that Iana sang tonight, he comes on a horse riding the clouds. I love that song. Is that one that you wrote? Yes, she wrote that song. It's incredible. I'm waiting for it to be on Spotify so I can add it to some playlists. So Israel is going to have this moment where they see Jesus riding on the clouds. They're like, that's the son of man. He's on the clouds. It's Daniel 7. It's, it's, like, it's him. It's happening. Um, and, and he's going to be delivering them from the concentration camps, from everything, gathering them from the four corners of the earth, bringing them to Israel, um, the, and in, with miracles even greater than the Exodus. There's a few verses that describe, like, it's going to be more dramatic than the Exodus. And can we, like, the Exodus was pretty darn dramatic and has been like the foundation of Jewish identity since then. Passover is like the, this central, like central part of Jewish memory. Um, it, it's absolutely formative to everything it means to be Jewish. Um, but he's going to do miracles even more dramatic than the Exodus. And end of the tribulation they've just seen the faithful gentile church and and messianic believers as well um, just walk out the gospel with such humility and love and joy and power and sacrifice during the tribulation they've seen christians martyred they've seen christians take them into their home and hide them from the antichrist forces They're, they've basically seen you know what 
the church should have been doing and some were doing during the Holocaust. They've been, they've been seeing the witness of the church, loving them throughout the, um, throughout the whole tribulation. Um, and they're going to, and with all of that kind of as context, it's already been softening them. They're going to see Jesus, see Yeshua of Nazareth, and they're going to recognize. And I can only imagine the combination of emotions that moment is where they're like, oh no, oh no, oh no, we missed it. Like we made the worst mistake ever. Like looking on the one they pierced. Um, But they're also gonna have like so much joy. Like that's Yahweh. That's the son of David. That's the son of man. He's fulfilling his promises. There he is. He's on the clouds. He's doing it. He's rescuing us. He's returning us to the land. Um, and they're going to realize, they're going to have this moment of mourning and repenting. And they're going to have salvation physically as Jesus rescues them from the Antichrist. And salvation spiritually as they enter into repentance and come into the new covenant with, with, with God. And Jesus gets this incredible moment. Then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. They didn't, 2,000 years ago, they mostly didn't believe that Jesus was from God. But then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent him. Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? It's, it's Jesus with the blood of his enemies on his robes. Um, Psalm 24, he's coming into the gates of the city. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And I imagine the Jews in the city kind of like peering out. They're still half terrified. And they're like, who is this king of glory? Like, we don't. We don't recognize him. They're trying to put the pieces together, trying to recognize, and then they they moment. They have the moment. Then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Here's my Revelation verse, which is my cheating because I wanted to put Zechariah again. Revelation 1-7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples of, on earth will mourn because of him. Those are the same phrases from Zechariah 12. Okay, just a quick note of clarification. Who is all Israel? I've been saying all Israel will be saved, and you might be thinking literally like every single one of them because when has every single one of any group got saved? Um, But remember, this is God's magnificent wisdom, and yes, actually all of them, every Jew who was alive on earth at that time when Jesus comes will get saved, like all of them. All of them who are alive at that time will be saved There's a lot of verses that you can look up those references if you want that talk about those who are left or the survivors, those who remain. Um, And yes, all of them will be called holy, Isaiah 4. Yes, all of the Jews who are left alive on earth at that point will be saved. Okay, but before that comes a lot of bad things. Um, Roman numeral V5, Satan's rage and Jacob's trouble. Um, So I already mentioned Satan has a unique hatred. I'm on page eight. Caitlin, hurry it up. Satan has a unique hatred for Israel in response to God's love for Israel. Satan really, really, really hates Israel. And Satan knows the promises. He knows the covenant. He knows they're all tied together. He knows Israel has to be righteous. Um, and he's, he's, he ultimately hates Jesus. And so, but he's, he's strategic and he's figuring out the best way to strike against Jesus is to strike against his covenant people. Um, 
mostly, in my opinion, for this one particular key reason. Jesus said that they would not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, that's that Jerusalem, Jerusalem verse. And he said, like, to the leaders of Jerusalem, you won't, I won't be back. You won't see me again until you actually accept me, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I just imagine whenever, like, Satan overheard Jesus say that in Matthew 23, his ears perked up. He's like, loophole. He just gave me, like, the back door into destroying his plan. Like, this is the clear shot to the center of the Death Star. If I can hit this, like, if I can destroy this piece of the plan, we can knock out the whole thing, and then Jesus won't come back. And he's actually right. If Satan could knock out this piece of the plan, that's the whole plan right there. <clears throat> so, so to a large extent, anti-Semitism throughout history, everything that's, been, that's happened to the Jewish people throughout history um, has been, at least since Jesus said that, I think Satan's been very strategic. If I can wipe them out, if there's no one left to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus backed himself into a corner. He can't come back. He can't keep his promise if there's no Jews left alive, let's raise up this dude called Hitler. And so he, he is doing these strategic things throughout history um, to try to wipe out the Jews so that they can't accept Jesus and the whole, whole plan crumbles. Um, Jacob's trouble. So this is another phrase for the tribulation. It means the same thing. Um, but just like Hitler during World War II, Satan is going after the Jews in a very, very focused way. Um, during the tribulation. It's not only them. Antichrist is mean to everybody. But particularly, there's like a focused aggression towards, towards Israel. Revelation um, shows this picture of Israel as a woman that the dragon is attacking. The dragon, of course, being Satan. And he's, he's furious, like, like an animal backed into a corner. There's another part of Revelation that describes, like, because he knows his time is short. Like, he knows he's on limited time here. He's read the Bible. He knows it's, like, a seven-year expiration date. He's going to do everything he can to cause as much damage as possible well, within, within these last moments, these last years that he has. So he's just like lashing out at everything, striking at Israel in every way he can. Um, and even today, like, I really think he's laying the foundation for that. Um, and anti-Semitism is on an uptick in our nation and throughout the world. Um, it's, you start looking up some of this stuff and it's kind of scary. Like, it is on an uptick. Um, Satan's laying the foundation. <clears throat> um, but the good news is that God allows this because of the whole tapestry of his purposes, but he will save Israel from it. Um, we get this phrase, Jacob's trouble, from Jeremiah 30. How awful that day will be, no other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. That's good news. They're going to be saved out of it. Um, but the, God is going to allow this for his purposes. And this is um, such a it's really sobering part of when we think about the tribulation, think about Jacob's trouble, it's God's doing. There, he actually raises up the Antichrist, like God raises up the Antichrist. God raises up a shepherd who, it's, I didn't put the verse here, um, but God does raise up the Antichrist, and he allows it all to happen, and he's the one pulling the strings, um, and nothing happens outside of his control. It's not like, oh, whoops, I turned my back for one second, and the whole tribulation started. Um, God is the one in control of this, 
And he's, he's always used judgment to get his people's attention and turn them back to himself. That was the point of the exile. He was trying to get their attention. Throughout um, the Old Testament, he's, he uses judgment to get his people's attention and draw them back to himself. Um, Israel's experience of the tribulation is going to chasten them into humility and repentance unto salvation. And this is not a saying like, yeah, God, get them. They need to be judged. That's like, no, we're on, we're the watchmen crying out like, God, have mercy. You have to do this, but can you please have as much mercy as possible? That's what we're doing as intercessors. Um, but God's going to allow them to go through incredible pressure so that they, it's a phrase from Song of Solomon, they come up from the wilderness leaning on their beloved. And that's the thing, you don't, you don't come up leaning unless you go through a wilderness. Like, we know that in our lives, right? You come up leaning, like, after you've walked through something. Israel's going to come up from the tribulation and from this age leaning on their beloved in a way they never have before. Um, and that is what is going to cleanse compromise from their midst and forge faithfulness in them so that they actually can fulfill their millennial calling and do what they're supposed to do for a thousand years so they can be that kingdom of priests with blessing to the whole world. Um, they, can't, they can't do that unless they go through this fire um, and come out, come up from the wilderness leaning on him. Um, it's, it's, it's his mercy to use this to forge something in them that there is no way to forge otherwise. Um, Remember, their calling is so epic. They're hosting the presence of God for the planet. Um, and just and think of how deeply the Exodus affected the Jewish psyche. And I mentioned a little bit ago, like how Passover is so just central to what it means to be Jewish. It's like the central callback point in their memory. Um, Jeremiah 23, 7 through 8, which I don't have on here, um, but I'm going to try to paraphrase it from memory, um, that... In that day, they'll no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the land of Egypt, but they'll actually say, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the nations where he had scattered us. Like, they're going to, the biggest thing in their memory that they're going to call back to is not the exodus from Egypt. It's the exodus from the Antichrist global kingdom and how Jesus came and redeemed them and rescued them from that. It's going to be more dramatic, and that's going to be so dramatic that it's going to, like, cement something in the, the spirit of the people of Israel that's going to hold them steady in faithfulness for a thousand years, hosting the presence of God on their dirt. <sighs> this is crazy wisdom. If I was God, I would not have done it this way. <clears throat> um, I think this is Malachi 3, 2 through 4. Who can endure the day of his coming? This is talking about refining Israel. Who can stand when he appears, for he will be like refiner's fire, or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. I love how even in this verse, he's highlighting that priestly ministry. He's like, I'm trying to purify my priests because I want them to priest. I want them to be a kingdom of priests for the world. <clears throat> All right, now let's talk about our, our role in this. I'm talking to us as Gentiles um, primarily. <clears throat> we want to align our hearts with God's heart for Israel, and that starts with having a right understanding of Israel. We have to, like, 
sort through, sift through, through your theology and recognize like, oh, I heard that teacher say this thing once and I'm realizing now that it was not biblical, but it kind of got stuck in my thinking. Okay, let me take that out, replace it with truth from the word. We want to sift through what our own thought processes are and just sift through our hearts because um, whether or not you ever heard bad teaching, Satan wants you to have bad theology in your heart. Um, so you could very well have some stuff in your heart that you didn't even know was there. Um, so, and a lot of people today may not actively hate Jewish people. Like no one's, you know, very few are going to be like, the Holocaust was a great thing. No, like, of course, we are, none of us are like actively anti-Semitic. Um, but you might have a little bit of a distorted theology that you don't even realize. So we want to just like ask God to examine us, help us come into a right understanding of, of his heart for Israel. Because it affects everything. It affects your whole eschatology. It affects all your, all your theology. If you, get, if you get Israel out of place, like one by one, all those other dominoes start to collapse. Because remember, the gospel is based on the Abrahamic covenant. So I wanted to, I was just thinking about um, someone that I used to know. I was in a Bible study in California years ago. Um, and there was this woman who was talking about her, we were just all sort of like talking about the end times and what, what we believed, and this woman was talking about um, how she doesn't believe there's a real tribulation coming, and I'm pretty sure she was all millennial, so she doesn't believe in a real thousand-year kingdom of God on the earth, um, and, she, and so she was talking about this, and the people in the room were like, they're so trying to like understand this, put the pieces together, and someone said like, but what about Israel? And she, she, she laughed, and she's like, I don't care about Israel. And I, I, I got chills, like, all over my body. I, ooh, I felt like, ooh, Satan just tipped his hand. I just saw those cards. That was, that, that, that was, that was Satan right there. I love this woman. She loves Jesus. I learned so much from her. I'm so glad I got to spend this time with her, and she's, she's amazing. But I do believe the enemy planted that in her heart. Um, and she immediately backpedaled and was saying, like, you know, oh, I'm not any more than any other unsaved nation. Of course, Israel gets, needs to be saved, just like, you know, India needs to be saved. And, but she didn't have a special place for Israel in her heart. And, like, it, it really it was coming out in her theology. It was affecting everything. So if we're not careful, if we don't have that place for Israel in our heart that God has, um, then, then we can end up in that arrogance that Paul talked about, um, where we think we don't need to have that foundation, don't need to have um, a place for Israel. <clears throat> Romans 11, I'm just going to read a piece of this thing I quoted. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. So we got to be careful that we don't end up in that place of conceit or arrogance. <clears throat> Um, we want to be in agreement with him. And back to where I started, like we want to be friends of God. We want to be in full agreement for the things that are on his heart. And in my experience, there's something like so, I mentioned this in our panel, um, was it just last week? Um, there's something so intimate when we come into, like when we, when we pray for the deep things on God's heart, we get to go to that deep place in God's heart. Like there's there's just a deep level of friendship and partnership that happens when you're willing to talk to him about those deep, precious things in his heart. Especially, I feel like especially if it's something that is largely ignored by a lot of other people. 
like I've touched this like a few times on a few different topics and like Israel's one of those topics where he's just like I've been waiting for someone to talk to me about this you get it like thank you for like caring about this with me and you get to go to that place of friendship with him Um, so just like selfishly for your own heart because you want to feel more God like care about Israel I want to talk about some practical ways to partner with God's purposes for Israel. Um, So God's wisdom is that the fullness of the Gentiles would provoke Israel to jealousy, turn around, like bring the gospel full circle back to Jerusalem and get Israel saved. Um, So how do we do this? How do we partner with God to provoke Israel to jealousy? What does this look like? Um, So I do want to mention, I heard this from Isaac Bennett uh, the other day, and it was so good. Jealousy is different from envy, because envy wants what isn't its own, something you have no right to. It belongs to someone else. Jealousy wants what is its own. That's why God is jealous for Israel, because he he actually deserves to have their affection. Like, jealousy is a husband's fury. Jealousy wants what it's supposed to have. Um, so I, I used the ESV translation of this Romans 11 verse here because the NIV said envy, and I'm like, actually, I think, I think jealousy is a more true translation here. So Israel gets provoked to jealousy, and what that looks like is that the church is walking in so much the fullness of God's presence, God's glory, the gift of the Spirit. We're, the church has reached maturity. I'm, t- I'm d- describing a season like during the tribulation when the church is operating at like peak awesome while we are getting persecuted and martyred. But the church has so much of God's presence and God's power on us and just like love and joy overflowing from our hearts. Um, and that like the spirit is poured out on the church. Joel 2 is happening to a whole bunch of Gentiles. And Israel's way like, wait, that, you're prophesying. That's Joel 2. Why are you prophesying? That's Joel 2. That's our promise. And they start, they get provoked to jealousy because they realize your, the, the Gentiles are, are, have our promises. A favor of our God is resting on you. Like, no, that's, that's, a, that's a real thing. That's like Yahweh is speaking through right now. How is Yahweh speaking through you right now? They, they're, they're like, wait a minute. And Israel gets provoked to jealousy. So I love how during this fast, we're praying a ton for Israel. And here at TPR, we've, we've decided to throw in some prayer topics for revival as well. Um, but really, they're not separate. Because when revival hits the church, when we're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, when the Spirit gets poured out, when Joel 2 happens in the church, we provoke Israel to jealousy and Israel gets saved. So it's, it's all tied up together. So when you're, if you're like in the room and there's a revival topic and you're like, I was here for Israel. Why are we praying for revival in America again? It's for Israel. It's all, it is all tied up together. We can pray for revival in the church knowing that it's going to touch Israel, provoke Israel jealousy. Israel gets saved. Like, yes, let's pray for the outpouring of the spirit on a bunch of Gentiles because this is how, this is God's wisdom. This is how it goes full circle. Um, so serving and blessing Israel in the end times. And I keep describing and just like, let's imagine the church during the tribulation. Um, Bob Jones had a prophetic word um, when he met Mike Bickle in 1983. If those names mean nothing to you, that's okay. Just know that these are awesome people and this was an awesome prophetic word. Um, that the lifestyle and witness of Corey Ten Boom would be one of the primary role models that the church is walking in during the end times. Like, can you imagine a globe full of a whole bunch of Cory Ten Booms. 
and, and just how she and her family like so loved the Jewish people so sacrificially and hid them in their home. Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in a concentration camp. They weren't even Jewish. They got in trouble for helping the Jews. If they had done nothing, they would have been fine. But they were willing to put it all on the line um, for these Jewish people. So just imagine the kind of witness it will be when Gentile believers are being Corey Ten Boom all over the world, loving and serving the Jewish people for this period of Jacob's trouble, um, laying down their lives for them. That's going to provoke some Jews to jealousy when they see just the love in the church for them. Um, I want to share a couple verses I found just last week that I freaked out over. I probably texted a few of you. I'm like, oh my gosh, can you believe this is in the Bible? Gentiles declaring Israel's destiny. So we talk a lot about being a forerunner messenger and like declaring the word of the Lord to prepare people for the end times and all of this. Um, But we have to make sure that includes God's destiny for Israel. Jeremiah actually prophesied that Gentiles would be declaring God's destiny for Israel in Gentile nations. Look at this. Jeremiah 31.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations, all you Gentiles. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. These are Gentiles in Gentile nations, proclaiming, presumably, to Gentiles that God will keep his promises to Israel and will regather them in in that nation. And I'm just thinking, like, that's a controversial statement today. If we declare, like, the, the future destiny of, like, national Israel, there's some political controversy over that statement. Um, there's, a whole, there's a whole mess of controversy over that statement. So this takes a lot of boldness to say, but God is going to raise up the church um, to be declaring the prophetic destiny of Israel in, in our own Gentile nations. And then also Gentiles declaring um, the plans of God to, to Jews. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Again, that's us. To the ends of the earth. He's talking to Gentiles. Say to daughter Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him and his re- recompense accompanies him. Now we're telling the Jewish people, hang on, your salvation is coming. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Hang on, your salvation is coming. Uh, standing as watchmen intercessors for Israel. I'm not going to belabor this point too much because if you've been around here the past two weeks, we've been in this like all the time. Um, but God is setting watchmen on the wall, Isaiah 62, watchmen who won't keep silent until he fulfills his promises, until Jerusalem's a praise in the earth. God's raising up an army of intercessors um, who will push his plan forward and cover Israel with as much mercy as possible. Because remember, this Jacob's trouble is coming. They need our prayers. We have to be praying for Israel. We have to be praying for God's mercy in the midst of this. Um, I've, I've been saying, not, don't give up or shut up until God makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth, and which, again, can't happen until Jesus comes back. I want to share just an incredible historical detail I learned last week. I was talking with some of you know Amy Ader, um, and she told me this thing she learned about the Ten Boom family. Um, you can find this on the, the website of the Ten Boom family house. It's like, it's a museum. And on the website, they have a tour of the house. And this, this little story I'm about to share was on the website of the Ten Boom family house. So that's where to find it if you go to that website. So Corey Ten Boom's great-grandfather, Willem Ten Boom, he started a weekly prayer meeting for Israel 
100 years before World War II. 1844, he, was, he started a prayer meeting. God just put it on his heart, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the regathering of Israel as a nation. 1844, what Christians in 1844 were thinking of the regathering of Israel to their national homeland? That was not a thing. That was not like the major thing that was happening in Christianity that Christians were like thinking about and praying about and writing books about in 1844. But God put it on the heart of great-grandfather Ten Boom to start a weekly prayer meeting. This prayer meeting did not stop for a hundred years. Weekly prayer meetings in their homes. So they passed it on to their kids, their grandkids. Corey Ten Boom grew up in weekly prayer meetings praying for the salvation of Israel. <sighs> Amy told me that and I was like, Oh, that's going in my teaching. I have to tell them this. I freaked out so hard. Because um, just imagine what that did to the Ten Boom family. That was forging a love for Israel in their heart and partnership with God in their heart. So when the pressure came, they were prepared. It wasn't even a question like, are we going to stand with the Jews or not? They were like, yes, our family has been praying for them for a hundred literal years. Yes, we're going to lay down our lives and do whatever it takes. So I think you might already be seeing the parallels of where I'm going with this. Think of us now, like we're, we're praying for Israel and we're getting something forged in us that when Jacob's trouble comes in however many years or decades that is, we have, what is it, Sunday morning from weekly prayer, Saturday morning, weekly prayer meeting for Israel. Even when we're not in a fast, we're praying um, weekly for Israel. Something's getting forged in our community that we're going we're gonna to be ready to stand with Israel when the time comes and like lean into it. Please lean into it. I know we're not all at that Sunday morning, um, but like let's lean into that. Let's pray for Israel. Let's get this forged in us so when that moment comes, we can stand. Um, worship person, leader team, you can come up. The prophetic promise of 100 million intercessors for Israel. We've been referencing this as we, you know, pray throughout the week during this fast. Um, in 1983, in the same period of time that Bob Jones told Mike Bickle the Cory Ten Boom thing, that the end time church would be like Cory Ten Boom, he also talked about God raising up 100 million Gentile intercessors for Israel. So that was a prophetic word that was given 40 years ago. And, and even, you know, subjective prophecy aside, which there's lots of reasons to trust that, that word. But even that aside, this is in scripture, that God is setting watchmen on the walls, that he's calling his people to pray for Israel. And so IHOP KC and many others around the world have been thinking of that word and tracking with it and praying for it for 40 years, that God would raise up 100 million Gentile intercessors for Israel. So here we are in this, in this fast, and um, you, you probably heard the story of how this fast, well, part of how this fast started this month um, was there's a ministry, um, International Prayer Connect, nothing whatsoever to do with IHOP KC, although I think the leaders are friends, so they're like friendly but not connected to IHOP. Um, we're, we're committed to pray for Israel for one day on May 28th. That's a whole network of, it's like a network of networks of intercessors all over the world, um, and they pray for different countries on certain assigned days. And it just so happened, May 28th, they were planning, that's our day that we're all going to pray for Israel. 
So then Mike Bickle hears about this. They were already planning to do a fast. This Israel thing got wrapped up in the fast. And here we are, we are with a Isaiah 62, 21 day fast for Israel. Um, but we're, we're believing that this is a sign from God. Like those hundred million, like it's estimated it's actually a hundred million intercessors that International Prayer Connect has rallied to pray for Israel on May 28th. Um, having, not knowing about the Bob Jones word, I'm assuming, like it's not, it wasn't because of that. Um, but we're believing that this is a sign, that this is a little glimpse, a little partial fulfillment, that God actually is going to raise up 100 million intercessors for Israel in our generation. Um, and so one of the things we're praying during this fast is that God would mark hearts um, to see themselves as watchmen on the wall, to see themselves as like lifelong intercessors for Israel, not only that one day, but throughout their lives. Uh, so we're praying for the people doing this 21 day fast, people who are committed to the 28th. And honestly, we're not limited to that. Let's pray for believers all over the world to get hijacked into God's heart and into God's purposes for Israel. Um, and so the question I wanna ask tonight is, are you set as a watchman for Israel? Do you see yourself in this narrative? God's going to set watchmen on the wall. He's, going, he's raising in right now. He's raising up intercessors, um, friends. He's raising up friends of the bridegroom to care about what he cares about, to enter into his heart with him and contend in prayer for his purposes for Israel. And right now it's mostly prayer. There's going to be a day when we're called to do a lot more than that. Uh, but he's raising up his friends who will stand with him as watchmen. So I just want to encourage you guys, um, feel free to like linger a few minutes um, before you leave tonight. Just as Iana plays, um, just ask yourself that question. Ask the Lord that question. Am I supposed to be a watchman on the wall for Israel? Um, is that something that you know God's highlighting in your heart right now? I know a lot of people in this room, the answer is already yes. So we can just ask God, will you take me deeper? Will you give me more revelation? Will you reveal, will you touch me with your emotions for Israel more? Will you prepare me more for what it looks like to provoke Israel to jealousy? And if you're in here and this is a new idea to you, or maybe you're listening to this recording later and it's a new idea to you, but something's stirring in your heart, um, let's 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 say yes to it let's give god that open door like god this is new to me i don't really understand it but i see the verses there's something real about this god can you help me speak to me open up my heart help me get this i want to say yes to you whatever you're asking i want to say yes that's a given let's already just settle that when you got saved, you gave your whole life to him. Saying yes is a given. God, help me understand what I'm saying yes to so I can really, really say yes to it. Um, let's just ask God to increase this burden on our heart. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.